0: You are listening to a sermon from Linworth Road Church. For more information about Linworth Road Church, please visit www.linworthroadchurch.com. Since uh, I am by nature a brooder, when somebody said to me this past week, they said, just imagine how great life would be if we didn't always overthink things. I've been thinking about that all week. <laughs> Thank you to Nicholas Shaivo for that. That just stuck with me all week long. It made me smile every time I thought about it. All right. Why don't you stand up? And if you want to follow along, it's page 874. I'm going to read the parable of the prodigal son. That's where Luke's gospel has us. This morning, beginning in verse 11, page 874. And Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. No one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, but the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing and he Called one of his servants and said, What asked what these things meant? And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, said, Look, these entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might. Celebrate with my friends, but when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you kill the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, "Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is God's word. You take a seat." This is such a well-loved parable. And I've preached on it many times, and every time the Holy Spirit reveals new things to me. This is one of the Bible's best-known passages, so well-known, the term prodigal son has leaked into our cultural dictionary. It has become a broad descriptor for a wayward child or a morality tale about hitting rock bottom. It is sometimes viewed falsely, I might say, as a necessary pathway for young people to sow their wild oats, which is really an odd phrase. I have no idea where that comes from. In the world of art, in the world of art, Rembrandt's rendering of the prodigal son is one of his final paintings. Here you see it, painted in the last two years of his life. This hangs in St. Petersburg, Russia. It's called by some the greatest picture ever painted. And then finally Prodigal Son is presently the name of a TV show. A dark comedy probing the mind of a serial killer. I have not watched it. I don't plan on watching it. I I think it relates to uh, I think it relates to a Prodigal Son. There's a son who's a psychologist, and he's studying the mind of his father, who is a serial killer. So I may not have that correct, but you can let me know after the service if you're willing to admit that you know (laughs) the answer. Now, this is a long parable, which tempts people to wade so deeply into its details that they miss the larger meaning. Or we want to know things like what's the outcome to the older son, of which Jesus has no reason to expand on. So, before we dig into it some more, let's pray and ask the Holy Spirit to illumine us. Father, in Jesus' name, thank you for what we've already experienced in the prayers and the songs. And now as we've read the scriptures together, open up our hearts, Father, to see and to understand and carve new pathways, surprises. Father, how many of us have heard this parable so often that perhaps we're tempted to believe that there's nothing here for me. Please keep us from that, Father. Father that this morning we might hear your voice and draw close to you. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, so let's unpack this a little bit. First thing we've got to do, again, is to put it into context. Uh, the Pharisees are in the audience. They have been critical of Jesus for associating and eating with sinners, those whom the Pharisees separated from. We can see that there in the first couple of verses of Luke 15. Jesus tells three stories in response to this criticism. The parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin. And the three now are tied together by the repeated use of the phrase lost and found. But, No longer are we talking about animals or objects. Jesus ascends to the main point people. People matter most. And people are lost or they are dead, as indicated by Jesus, and need to be made alive. Secondly, and if we could go back just into the Rembrandt image, thank you, you're already ahead of me. Secondly, who does each character represent? The painting is helpful to again just lay this out. We see the Father with his hands on the prodigal son. That is plainly God the Father. The younger son, kneeling here, is the one who squanders his father's inheritance. He represents the riffraff who are wasting their lives in riotous living. They are the ones Jesus has been welcoming to his dinner table. Finally, we see the older brother who is standing with his arms here crossed, looking rather grimly, at the whole situation, that's the older brother, and he represents the Pharisees and the religious leaders who are in opposition to Jesus, to who he associates with, and to his message. Now, through these characters, Jesus paints a strikingly vivid contrast. On one hand is the tender. Compassionate heart of the Father towards those who are spiritually lost. And on the other is the resentment of the leaders. Now, on the one side of the equation, as to the Father's love, there is so much here. And in the past, we have dived deeply into this. The way he keeps looking for his son, even after such a long absence, How he runs towards him. The manner in which he welcomes him. The restoration of his status as a son. The feast that he threw. The way that he celebrates him. So many cultural norms were broken in this story by the Father as Jesus told it. In order to surprise his hearers, adding weight to the Father's scandalous love. The fattened calf was a way of referring to the best of the best. It would be filet mignon if it was written today. Filet mignon for us. And that level of celebration was reserved for a party given to the entire village. And there was no doubt regarding the meaning of this banquet picture for Jesus' audience. It pointed to a future banquet as foretold in prophecy A grand affair hosted by the Messiah himself to usher in a new age. Jesus had just referred to this banquet. We saw that in Luke chapter 14 and its surprising guest list. This parable continues with that idea that the religious leaders will be surprised and they will be offended by who sits around that table. So that's one side of the equation, something we've looked at many times before. Now on the other side of the equation is the older son, who's also a, a striking picture is painted. There is not forgiveness here, but there is anger and resentment. On the one hand, we have the compassionate love of the Father. On the other, the resentment of the leaders, and it makes us ask, for you and me, when we see forgiveness extended in a way that challenges our assumptions, who are we more like? Are we closer to the Father, or are we closer to the religious leaders? And another troubling question I think we must ask here. For us, for religious people and for Christians, is there an inertia that if unchecked, pulls us toward the resentment side of the ledger? Of course, our goal as Christ's followers is to be more like the Father, to grow in compassion. And to do that this morning, that's our ultimate goal, we want to get there. How do we grow in compassion? How do we cultivate the heart of the Father for spiritual, the spiritually lost? But to do that this morning, I want to look at what might inhibit, what might put a plug in that flow of compassion. I want to dive a little deeper into the life of the older son to look at the source of his resentment, the object of his resentment, and the outcome of his resentment. So, if you're taking notes, that's our outline. The source of his resentment, the object of his resentment, and the outcome of his resentment. And seen this way, the parable actually serves as both a warning and an encouragement. And by the time we cycle to our applications, we'll take a look at both, both the warning and the encouragement, okay? All right, look at verse 28. Go back at verse 28, and here we have the best little window, verses 28-30, through 30, into the mentality, into the, the, the attitude, the disposition of the older brother. And notice how the older brother plays the part of the dutiful son. He checks all the boxes. All the rules are followed. He does what he's asked. He is the responsible one. Now some of you are a middle sibling, you are a baby in your family, and you are saying, yep, that's my older brother and sister, right there in description. Now if you're the oldest among your siblings, you're saying, nothing ever gets done around here unless I do it. So, you're the oldest, or you're the baby, or in the middle, let's be careful not to judge each other during this sermon But seriously, below the responsible exterior, something else is brewing. Do you recognize his motivation? Did you note that? Did you note how he characterizes the the fulfillment of being a son? In actually the NIV, it says it this way. In the NIV, verse 29, it says, He replied, All these years I've slayed for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to. And in all that time, you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. can feel the resentment dripping in his words. Now when he calls it slaving, it's so interesting. That image invokes an adversarial relationship of distrust rather than a father-son relationship. It is contractual rather than being based on self-giving love. God is more of a master than a lover. He demands without affection. He exacts without personal care. And the younger son lives from a motivation that we might call moral conformity. Inside of him, a fire has been smoldering There are unmet expectations, and this is the source of his resentment. When the younger son returns, the smoldering coals grow into a raging fire, fueled by jealousy. You see, this is the problem with moral conformity. It does not satisfy us. It does not have the power to change us. It turns the Father's love into something earned, which means by necessity that it is neither free or unconditional. If it must be manipulated, this is the same thing in a marital relationship. It's the same thing in relationships amongst friends. If the love must be manipulated, then it is not really love. And you know, there's hints here. There are some hints here that the older son is resentful because the younger son got to do some of the things that he secretly desires to do. It's curious to me that he specifically mentions the sexual sins of his brother when he says the inheritance was wasted on prostitutes. You see, here's a a reality. Religious people, and we as Christians as well, We can judge most harshly those who indulge in the things that we secretly want. Let me say it again. As believers and as religious people, we're tempted to judge most harshly those who indulge in the things that we secretly want. They restrain themselves in the world of religion, They restrain themselves not to please the one who loves them, but for a reason that feeds their spiritual pride. And likely here, in order to keep his image intact, there's moral restraint, not for the purpose of love, but in order to keep his image intact. You see, moral conformity alone can do nothing to curb the sexual appetite. And on top of all this, from the, brother's, the older brother's spiritual economy. The younger brother is rewarded for all this nonsense. And from his point of view, he is outraged. And he's rightly outraged from his perspective. It was unjust. It was scandalous. And he was deeply embittered by it. This is the source of his resentment. Now let's move to the object of his resentment. Now, who's he resentful towards? And our 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 immediate thought is to go towards the younger brother, right? It's the younger brother that comes waltzing back after all the carousing and gets a party thrown for him, while he's been slaving away in relative obscurity. But is the son really the main point of his resentment? Is the son the object of his resentment? quite clear. It's not. Who is it? Again, go back to verse 28 and 29 and 30. Look at it in your text here. He was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I may celebrate with your friends. The primary object of his resentment Is his father he feels overlooked he feels overlooked he feels unjustly treated we recognize in the older brother a profound insecurity he collapses into self-pity he doubts his father's love you never threw a party like that for me and my friends and we have to ask the question here, this is really important, is his view of reality correct? You know, it struck me afresh in this reading this week. Jesus wanting us to know that the older son's problem is not a deficit of the father's love. Right? This father loves the older son. The older son does not have some deficit he does not have some self-esteem issue that comes from growing up in an unloving family. Look at verse 28. It says the father pleads with his son to join the party. He calls him my son in verse 31. He says, he reminds him in that same verse, everything I have is your son. The problem does not reside with the father, but rather the older son. The older son has twisted the meaning of his father's love. The problem resides in him. He's reduced his father's love. Sin working in him is the way we would understand this as we look at the whole witness of Scripture. Sin working in him has corrupted and twisted the meaning of his father's love. And he has reduced that relationship to an employment contract. My dad is master, the boss man, and me, a slave, an employee. Therefore, because he views his dad that way, there is always the threat that dad will take more than he is due. That dad will act in self-interest. Jesus is saying something to all of us about our tendency to make the same reduction To bear the same insecurity towards our heavenly Father. By the way, this is the same characterization, this slave master relationship, this is the same characterization of the Father that we're going to run across in Luke chapter 19 in the parable of the talents. There, briefly, the assistant to a noble king dodges a clear assignment given to him because of fear, because of his wrong beliefs about the noble king. And he assigns to the king the same attributes that this older brother assigns to his father here. You see, this inclination to reduce our relationship to God to something contractual, to something that's more employer-employee, is a tendency, and it's always been a temptation for the people of God, as if there's an inertia to take our walk with God there. In ancient times, the prophet Hosea said this, chapter 2, verse 16, when speaking of a future day when God will restore His people, he said, in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. God is saying there is coming a day where you will see that our relationship is more like the love share between a husband and a wife, not the heartless conformity of a slave to a master. Inward delight will become the motivation rather than moral conformity. So what have we said so far? We've looked at the source of the older son's resentment. Now we've tried to establish that there was resentment toward his son. The the, the younger son was certainly an object of resentment, but the primary resentment was towards his father. And now, thirdly, the outcome of his resentment. The source of his resentment, and now the outcome of his resentment. Just for a moment, Think of the fruit of moral conformity. Think of the fruit of this kind of way of seeing God and viewing our relationship with Him. Think of the outcome of the wrong things he's believed about his father. He cannot experience his father's love. He can't feel it. He can't experience it. He is filled with negativity and bitterness he is unable to enter the joy of celebration. There we saw in verse, what, verse 32, the final verse. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad the Father appeals to Him. But He can't, He can't enter into it. He's too bitter. He's too negative. He's too resentful. It's sad. He's unable to forgive. Others cannot meet the same standard of perfection that he falsely ascribes to himself this is what spiritual pride does to us others cannot meet the same standard of perfection that he falsely ascribes to himself he's alone he's cut off from family and he's cut off from community and though all the village all the village thought so highly of this dutiful, responsible, older brother. Yeah, Joe's oldest son. My goodness, he is, man, he is a great man. He is responsible. Man, he is a great older son. Nobody knew the true self that was brewing underneath. And that disparity between truth and what was between perception and truth just compounded his isolation. That's the high price to pay that we pay. It's the high price we pay for spiritual pride, for insecurity, for believing the wrong things about our Father. You see, this parable does serve as a strong warning against moral conformity and reducing our relationship with God to it. You see, why we do what we do does matter. Why we do what we do does matter And when we are not like our Father, and maybe, perhaps, one of the messages here is that when our compassion for lost people wanes, when our compassion for lost people wanes, and when it is replaced by resentment, it is like a yellow caution light flashing for us that we may be drifting away from our first love and that we may be losing our place as, fa- as sons and daughters to our Father. Throughout the Old and New Testament both, we see this drift as a constant temptation, this temptation to reduce, to make it a contractual relationship. And that includes religious people and it includes you and me. Christians everywhere committed to practicing the Bible have this temptation. I'd like to take a couple of minutes now and and just turn here a little bit. We'll talk for a few minutes about moral conformity and what what I think may cause it and what we can do to fight it. But then I don't want to end there. I want to end with talking about how do we more cultivate the heart of the Father? That's where we want to go, right? We don't want to be not just not resentful. That's a double negative. We want to cultivate the compassion that the Father has for the spiritually lost. That's where we want to get to. But I want to just, for a moment, mention two causes, I think, of moral conformity. And they come from my years of reflection in ministry. And also the shadows that lurk in my own heart. Here's one. Again, the problem with the older son was the contractual relationship he had with his father. He put his father in debt to himself. Most of us come to Jesus, I could say probably all of us, come to Jesus with either conscious or unconscious expectations of what he will do for me. If I do ABC, if I maintain faithfulness, if I raise my kids in a certain way, if I tithe this amount of money, then God will guarantee me health, wealth, and success. However you define and however you spell that out. Or some other formula that we've created in our minds. And then when those expectations get busted, and they will, when those dreams go south, and some of them will, that's a very pivotal point in the life of Christ followers. And some of you have been around long enough to see some people really go north when that happens. And some of you have seen people really go south and either become just simply kind of um, just sort of rolling through life without much feeling or completely abandoning their faith. When the expectations get busted and when God does challenge this contractual relationship, it is either an opportunity to allow God to purify those motives, to bring you into a deeper union with Christ, or to turn your disappointment into a more predictable, more controlled Sphere of moral conformity. What I mean is this, is that when that happens, we turn our faith into a system of exchanges with God with its primary goal of my happiness in the here and now. And when we reduce God to this, God therefore exists to serve primarily my happiness and my well-being. We no longer have a relationship with God. He exists to serve me. He exists to serve my well-being. This is what we're tempted to do. When the Father becomes that, He can no longer confront me or no longer change me because I'm the one that's in control. This obviously creates drift. And so the application here is very simple. When expectations get busted, recognize that God's up to something. That He's trying to give you a clearer picture of who He is. And that He's trying to teach you to learn to love Him for His sake. Not only for the benefits that we derive. Some of you have experienced this. But when you persevere, and when you reach new levels of intimacy, when you bust through those quitting points, you're going to experience a level of intimacy and union and closeness with Christ that you never dreamed imaginable when you see Him as God. But you've got to persevere. A second thing why does this inertia towards moral conformity happen? Second, as Christians, myself included, after a few years, we tend to spend all of our time with other Christians. And we have no non-Christian interaction or non-Christian friends. And when that happens, we tend to forget our own salvation story. We tend to, to forget the extent of our sinfulness. We tend to forget even the gospel itself. We begin to look to our own spiritual accomplishments and our own spiritual resume as the very basis of our righteousness. We no longer see God as holy. We no longer understand how profoundly sinful and undeserving, or really deserving of judgment that we are. This is when the drift towards moral conformity begins to take hold we forget the needs of those without God. We become, and when we forget those needs, when we become insulated, we become more inclined to judge, to exclude, to preach at people rather than coming alongside, listening, and then communicating to them as a fellow recipient of grace. Similarly, in this hotly, overly politicized climate, anybody notice that recently? Hotly, and when I say overly politicized, I mean that that not that people shouldn't care about politics. That's not what I mean by that. What I mean is that people care too deeply. They care too much. In a hotly, overly politicized climate, we tend to see others, we tend to see others not as those in need of Jesus Christ. But rather we see them with a political label. They are therefore a friend or enemy based on whether their political convictions align with ours. And it's true that our heart for the lost can be consumed by a rage that is based on the fear of losing a certain way of life. Now, those fears may be very real. Those fears may be very real. Some of those fears may unfold. Yet, if we are in a love relationship with the Father, our response, our conduct, our speech, our goals will always be shaped not only for my happiness in the here and now, But they will also be shaped by the hope of eternity and desiring others to share in that hope. So what's the application here? In your world, do you have the opportunity? Can you make the opportunity to invest time with non-Christians? And in doing so, get up close to the Father's heart because He's seeking them. I will say that in my own life, some of my most intimate times with my Father have been when I have been in long, extended conversations with lost men or women who are pouring out their heart and you can sense that God is seeking them and you feel and experience the presence of God in that sacred, holy moment. What's happening there? You're simply working where the Father is working. You have found yourself right up against where he is. And you're experiencing his holy presence because he's there. I love, by the way, a great Old Testament passage that I didn't include this morning. no time to look at it, but I'd encourage you to read sometime Ezekiel 34. Which um, there may indeed, you can't say with certainty, but It's possible Ezekiel 34 was in Jesus' mind when He told this parable. The Father is seeking. And He calls us to be on mission with Him. If you feel like you've not experienced God for a long time, there may be lots of reasons for that. But one of them might be that it's been just too long since you've come up alongside of a lost person and felt the pain and the alienation and the aloneness of being lost in this world. So make time. Make time. What will happen is you get close to the Father's heart. You know what else will happen? You'll shed that drift towards self-righteousness. It'll be a part of helping you shed that drift towards moral conformity. Now, I said just a minute ago, our goal is not a double negative. Our goal is to not not just be resentful. I dealt with resentment because it can plug the life of God flowing into you, the compassion of God flowing into us, making us, right? To be capable of deep love, we must have the love of God through His Holy Spirit flowing in and through us. And that is God's will for your life to make you capable of deep love. But things like resentment put a plug in that. They stop it. Those plugs have to be pulled out before the love of God can pour into our hearts. So if we deal with the source and the object and the outcome of our resentments, then we can begin to think, value, love, and feel about the spiritually lost the way the Father does. God is a missionary God. And God has put a missionary heart in us. John Stott said that. and I didn't quote it directly, but the spirit of it. And that is so clear here in John chapter 17, Jesus said, as the Father has sent me, so I have sent you. As we've been telling you, in this next leg of our journey as a church, is where Lindworth is going. We're emphasizing spiritual readiness and spiritual preparation. One, in readiness to live a life in the spirit. And two, in preparation a renewed preparation to share our faith meaningfully with this current culture, the people we live and work and play alongside of. As I thought about this message weeks ago, I thought to myself, you know, when we get to Luke 15, this is going to be a great opportunity to inspire our vision, to expound on why we should have a heart for, the, for spiritual strays, to no longer keep our heads down but to engage them with newfound confidence. Yes. Amen. But, before we go there, before we look at our responsibility, this parable urges us to build the right heart. I want to say this morning carefully, because this is somewhat nuanced. I'm talking here about layers and what comes first, but realize that God does not intend for you primarily to see evangelism as just one more duty, one more demand placed on me, one more burden for me to carry, and one more area for me to feel guilty over. No, God has set us free. God has forgiven us. His love has been poured out into our hearts. And I think a big part of this parable, what struck me so much this week, is how many times I've been the older son and I have been unable to receive that love and that forgiveness. I wonder how many of us have been unable to receive this immeasurable love, this immeasurable forgiveness. Can you become like a little child and receive and trust in what the Father says about you? These are my words, friends. I'm not making this up. These are the words of Jesus. It's Jesus who painted the Father with such radical, scandalous overwhelming love. I'm not making it up. I'm not trying to make you think, oh, that's, you know, a great sermon. These are his words. His overwhelming grace. He painted the picture of the Father. I didn't. What love? What kind of love is this? But realize, friends, the Bible teaches we can't grasp comprehend, believe in, receive, accept that love on our own. We need the help of the Holy Spirit. We need the community of one another. Ephesians 3 clearly teaches these things. We need the Holy Spirit. We need the community of one another to help us understand the multi-dimensions Of this kind of grace and this kind of love, friends, I just want us to have this motivation first—to not see it primarily as a demand, as as a burden, but something that we get to do when we begin to believe that He loves us the way that He says. It's not that I have to. It's that I want to. How can I not want to share this scandalous message with every person on the globe? That's the spirit of it. Going back to our story. So did I say the application there? Spend time with lost people. I think I said that somewhere. Finally, lastly, to conclude. And Nick, you guys can come on up if you'd like. Come on up. To conclude, the sins of the two brothers were different, right? The sins of the two brothers were different. The wanton recklessness of the younger son and the jealousy of the older son. But did you pick up that the root issue is the same? Whether it's wanton recklessness or jealousy and resentment, The issue is pride. The issue is self-sufficiency. The willing refusal to submit to the Father's love and to His plan for their lives. The refusal to submit to the gospel of grace. Some of you are guilty of wanton recklessness. Others you are guilty of spiritual pride and taking pride in your sense of responsibility. But the root issue is the same the refusal to submit to the Father's love and His plan for our lives. But did you pick up the good news? God loved them both. And God pursued them both. And in your sin, whichever form it takes, God is pursuing you. And when you see that kind of compassion, guess what wells up within you? A desire, a longing, a conviction, a delight in God that I want and a longing to share His message. God pursued us through Christ all the way to the cross. There the greatest scandal took place. The death of His Son at the hands of men. It is that love, love that would take our place. When we think about it from the standpoint of the Trinity, Truly, it was God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit taking our punishment that our sins deserve. That is a scandalous love that makes sense of forgiving the most wanton recklessness or forgiving the deepest spiritual pride or forgiving our most bitter enemy. And so my last application is that you would pray that the Spirit would help you to become like a little child, and to believe in and to receive His great love for you? Let's pray.